Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we hear from the driver of that horrific Toronto van attack. We talk politics with the polls neck and neck. And we talk about teachers and students. And do we have enough or do we need more? Both students and teachers. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the Toronto van attack suspect uh, in video obtained by Global News told police he was part of an incel community of men angry they could not attract women. Uh, And we're finally hearing what this uh, interview was like and excerpts from it. We're going to play some of, of that for you right now. This is Alec Manessian. I'm going to ask you this, because uh, it's important. Um, Ten people died here today. Um, Fifteen people were seriously injured. Um, I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. All right, that was uh, Alex Manassian uh, being interrogated uh, by police uh, just shortly after the attack. Let's bring in Andrew Russell, national online journalist, Global News. He is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. So why is this being heard now, Andrew? Why is this uh, coming to our attention at this point? So uh, this is a video and a transcript that was previously under a publication ban, and a group of news organizations, including Global News, had uh, fought to have it released. And a judge uh, ultimately agreed with us, saying that, um, you know, this was a a tragedy, a devastating tragedy um, for for Toronto, the community, and beyond. And uh, she wrote that um, people want to know why it happened. And uh, we're getting some uh, a look at uh, into the mindset of the alleged attacker. So, why the pub- uh, publication ban in the first place? Uh, I think the publication ban was originally uh, asked for by the defense counsel because there was a concern that uh, because of what he says, where he openly admits to uh, renting the van, performing some of the actions he's alleged to do, that it would a uh, would jeopardize a from uh, a jury or making it uh, jeopardize the impartiality of a jury but because uh the trial which is going to be going ahead in february of 2020 uh the judge has said the actions are not in question it's a judge alone it's a judge alone trial and it's solely going to focus on the mindset of manassian at the time uh obviously that's a, a major factor here he has a long history of mental illness uh, yeah, so, well, we, we don't, when he is in the interview, if I could talk about the interview for a second, he sure. asked a number of questions about his past sort of, you know, history in high school, questions about, uh, you know, mental well-being, and he chooses not to answer those questions. Um, so we don't, he, he's very guarded in the interview about himself, but he openly wants to talk about this sort of this violent ideology that you you mentioned off the top this the incel movement you know his mission being accomplished and his hatred towards women had we heard in the past that he did have uh, some mental issues um, or we, thoughts thereof or allegedly yeah so we I mean, from the reporting that we've done in the past we know that there was questions about his mental well-being when he was in high school 
uh, we interviewed at the time we interviewed some of his former classmates who said, you know, they exhibited strange behavior. Um, but we didn't, we've never officially had any kind of like right. sort of mental profile on him. Anything from the family on this? Any more there? Uh, from the inter- so the interview is four hours. It's just with, uh, it's with Alec Manassian about nine hours after the attack occurred with a detective in a room. Um, we haven't heard from the family or anyone else today. Uh, and uh, he doesn't mention anything about his past or his family in these four hours that we know of. In fact, in fact, he, when he when he talks about uh, his, the officer presses him on, you know, the day of the attack, and he says that, you know, when he when his father dropped him off, uh, when he was about to rent the truck, he actually lied to his father, and when the um, the detective pressed him on that, he again sort of just didn't want to answer any questions about that. Right. So he doesn't appear to show any sign of remorse at all, does he? During the, so I've gone through this uh, four-hour interview, you know, for the, I've been going over it for the last week, and it's just that's one of the most chilling or jarring things about this is yeah. he doesn't show any emotion when he's talking about how, you know, he'd killed when he's confronted with the fact that he'd killed 10 people. It's just he's very matter-of-fact. There's no emotion. Uh, it's very sort of his uh, his tone, his body language. It's it's very flat, and it's uh, it's one of the most chilling parts of of the video. Hmm. And as you said, Andrew, he seemed to spend his time talking uh, with the investigator. Uh, he seemed more adamant about promoting what it was that he had done. Uh, he he was asked several times, you know, sort of about his motivations for this, and he does get into great detail about how. He had previously spoken with or claims to have communicated online with two individuals in the United States who were both responsible for um, uh, mass shootings. Uh, one of them was Elliot Roger, who in 2014 killed six people outside of uh, the University of California, and it became one of the most well-known incidents in the so-called incel violence uh, that was motivated entirely by this sort of hatred towards women. Did he say in any way why he had this hatred towards women or how any insight in how it developed? Yeah, so he, he, he talks a lot about this perceived rejection from women, and he specifically talks about an incident at a party, a Halloween party in 2013, where he attempted to talk to a group of women, and he said they laughed at them. And then he said he sort of this was one of the starting points for his you know, his, what he calls his, you know, his day of retribution, his mission to get back at the, the quote, Chads and the Stacys. This is uh, incel terminology for sexually active people, but who are, I guess, it, it's all in this perception, this perceived rejection, and just this hatred towards women. Uh, you know, he, as you mentioned, he talks about Chads and Stacys, meaning the guys and girls that are dating. Um, he seems, uh, obviously, from what we've learned, socially awkward, to say the least. How come it appears that he didn't take this on out on both genders as opposed to women? Any sort of insight there? Uh, from you know what we know about the incel sort of movement right. is that, and from past attacks, is that it largely is just directed towards women and. I can't probably, um, it's just, this is just based on yeah. experts that I've spoken with, but it's just one of those things where he's just, it's this, again, it's this 
perceived just it's this perceived it's his version of reality where he's being ignored by women and it's always directed towards women so this day was very much a success for him then uh in his mind yeah you you heard from the clip there he said you know it's his mission accomplished um it's it's a pretty chilling piece of, of video and if you know going through it the four hours the detective does a remarkable job of being able to elicit some of the detail into you know the thinking of uh of alec manassian so what happens next uh he's in court in february i understand yeah so there's going to be a a trial for judge alone in february of 2020 and there you know we're going to get more details about his quote unquote his uh his mindset at the time um you know again the judge has said the actions are not in question. It's going to be largely directed about his uh, his mindset. So um, uh, often when these things go to trial, it's very hard on the families. So uh, is that kept to a minimum here since we pretty much know what happened? Um, yeah, I mean, some of the details, some of the details were going to be, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be kept under a, a strict uh Judge order. Um, we know we at Global News made an executive decision not to release the entire video. Yeah. Um, and we sort of tried to balance the, you know, the need to do our job of showing you, you know, the information that is in the public interest, while also balancing um, the, you know, what happened to the the, uh, the feelings of the victims as well. I can uh, obviously understand why you, why uh, new org- news organizations do that. As you said, you have witnessed the thing over over uh, over several days. Um, is it those parts of the interview that we haven't seen that just make you feel the way you do personally about this? Um, I think it was. It's just hard to 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 sort of go through sift through this. You know the the constant just. The description of hatred towards women, the calm way in which he talked when he talks about carrying out his plan, and keeping in mind that this whole thing is happening just this happened just hours after uh, he killed ten people is just it's it's a jarring thing to to watch. Wow. Um, so, uh, what do you think the public will learn from all of this? I think one of the one of the main things that is the that I learned when watching this was that he claims to have communicated directly for some time with two people who committed mass atrocities in the United States. Um, We know before some of the terms about his incel or links to that group were through a Facebook post, but to really sit down and watch him walk us through how he sort of became uh, radicalized online through communicating with Elliot Rodger through these anonymous message boards like 4chan, communicating on Reddit. Um, it was pretty stunning. Will we learn anything from this trial? Well, and not so much the details or, or more about him, but anything we can learn to prevent this sort of thing? Um, I, I think one thing that's already happened is there has been more attention paid to these these places like 4chan, these anonymous message boards. Uh, we know that one of the one of the things that came out of 4chan was another anonymous message board called 8chan that some people may have heard of. It uh, had a link to several mass atrocities in the United States and elsewhere, specifically El Paso and the massacre at the at the mosques in uh, New Zealand. 
specifically where manifestos from the attackers were published online. And in fact, actually, after the El Paso shooting, uh, HN, um, the server, it was taken down from uh, from the Internet. Uh, will in the end, will this uh, be all? A, will this end up being a discussion about mental illness? Do you think? Well, I think that's one of the questions that we're going to see with the trial. Is there's going to be a conversation about uh, whether he, what what his mindset was, yeah. whether he was loose, was did he know what he was doing, or is his defense going to be a not criminal, criminally responsible defense? Is that what we're expecting from defense? I've heard, we, we don't know yet, I've heard conversations about it, but uh, it's something that's going to come up at, uh, at trial. How do you think this is going to be received uh, on the streets of Toronto? Um, that's a great question. I think you mentioned it earlier. There is going to be a conversation about, you know, when do you give somebody like this a platform, these kinds of ideas, versus, you know, the public interest in showing that, you know, this kind of ideology, it really breeds in one area, and that's these dark corners of the Internet. And I think that's a conversation people are going to be having. Fascinating case, and uh, obviously you can tell that uh, it has moved you. Andrew Russell, National Online Journalist, Global News. Uh, make sure you're watching Global News uh, tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. Andrew, thanks for the time. Great reporting. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, and it, you can find this on the website, Day of Retribution. Toronto van attack suspect describes hatred towards women as motive. This is penned by Stuart Bell and Andrew Russell, who we were just chatting with from Global News. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about election campaign 2019. Uh, continues. Uh, and every so often we're hearing uh, there's like polling going on madly pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, every so often, depending on the company, something is released. And and what, what we're pretty much seeing is that things were the way they were prior to the blackface uh, scandal uh, and the pictures being released. I'm guessing from the information that I've been able to, to uh, put together. And the latest uh, coming out is saying that it looks like at this point, and again, we're still a long ways out. Uh, at this point, uh, the Liberals are still hanging on to a minority. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Kim Spears is with us, Assistant Teaching Professor and Master's Project Advisor, School of Public Administration, University of Victoria, and on the line with us now. Kim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Scott. And just to let you know, I'm a Ontario-bred person, born in Toronto and grew up in Barrie. So, yeah, I, I, thanks so much for having me. Well, we don't I, hold oh, it. We don't <laughs> hold it against you that you're now living in beautiful British Columbia. We understand why. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Especially as we're heading into a winter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, are you support? I mean, we we keep seeing polls come out from various companies, and, and you know, and, and I'm sure we will to, uh, right up until the election time. It seems that things are pretty consistent. That it's been a tie. Uh, you know, I mean, last week we were talking about the liberals had got, or sorry, the conservatives had gotten a little bit of a bump off the uh, the blackface images. Now it appears uh, the latest uh, that the uh, liberals will still hold on to a minority. Again, we still are a far uh, quite a ways out, but considering what's happened are you surprised we are where we are they're still quite close yeah um scott i was um and uh i have a few <laughs> i have some bets with some folks out here um just that there will be a liberal minority now i know that there was some polling um right before the beginning of the election and uh, with the liberal party and i heard that they um at that point it would be a small majority so i still think it's going to be um 
a minority government, but I have to tell you, I was quite surprised um, just with the polls um, coming out after the brownface, blackface incidents. I, I thought the Liberals would take more of a hit, and um, it was quite interesting just to see if I can say how well handled um, the Liberal Party uh, yeah, uh, handled that crisis situation, as I would call it. Um, and just in terms of the polls, like some people said, no, it, it didn't affect their vote. And then other folks were saying, you know, they uh, disagreed with what he did, but they felt his apology was sincere. And between those two um, uh, groups of people, it, it was, I think, about 75, 76 percent. And I think around 24 percent that said, oh, yes, um, I don't like what happened and I'm not going to vote. Well, those people were usually, the vast majority of those people were conservatives anyways. Mm. So I thought we're not too- gonna, yeah, we're not going to really know, I think, until voting day. And, yeah. and I'm wondering if that's going to be like a campaign moment where the Liberals could have had power, but you know, maybe that was that campaign moment that that switched a few votes. So. Do you think it's one of those issues too that people have an initial reaction, and then when once it sinks in a bit, it sometimes changes? Like you know, I, I don't think the guy's a racist. I don't think that uh, you know I accept the yeah. prime minister's apology, but I think where as I as I think about it afterwards, and time has passed, I think, well, how did you not know that that was wrong? I think that's the part that that I'm having uh, trouble digesting. And is that something that resonates? afterwards do you think i think so but i i think there are going to be other issues that people um place their vote for like i you know is it going to be um a a strategic vote is there another party that they really do not want to get in and um is it going to be a policy issue there's been just um so many policy announcements, which is good, um, since the campaign started, um, you know, are people going to basically be policy shopping based on what they're most interested in, what most affects them, and, and so forth. So, it, yeah, just in terms of why, you know, kind of what is that critical factor in terms of why people vote the way they do, it, it's quite varied. And I think with this election, It'll be really interesting to do an analysis to see what you know how much um, that it, you know that in, Trudeau incident uh, affected them. Do you think this? Uh, do you think this election is going to be extremely hard to predict? I know they all are, but at the end of the day, this this just seems like a huge wild card. I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen here. I know. Well, I know, and it's only week three of yeah. uh, the campaign, and, and I don't know about you, but for me, it just feels like oh, it's been much longer. I guess just. A lot has happened. Um, I, I think, um, I, I mean, the, the campaign period is still really early. Mm-hmm. Um, the polls, you know, suggest that a, a majority of people have already decided in terms of how they're going to vote. Um, so there's always that undecided vote. And I think, you know, those folks are going to be the ones deciding on which party gets in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be, um, you know, conservatives or liberals. And I think another interesting um, thing to watch is just, you know, who is going to be that third party? Is it going to be the Greens or the NDP? That's another good point. There's just as exciting a race between third and fourth as there is between first and second. Yeah, I think so. And then with the People's Party, I don't know um, just 
how much momentum they're they're gathering, but you know they could take uh, votes away from the conservatives as well. But um, their their support is is fairly low right now. What about the SNC Lavalin factor? The Jody Wilson Raybould, her book, that sort of thing. Uh, more on the horizon there. Um, well, it was interesting. Um, yeah, just was it yesterday, yesterday that uh, Sheer proposed a No More Cover Ups Act and and um, um, you know brought forward the SNC Lavalin affair again. Um, I I think just with Canadians, um, just in terms of um, how they want their uh, politicians or candidates to act uh, during an election period. Like generally, um, it seems Canadians don't really like it when um, uh, there's negative campaigning. Um, so I don't know how far that SNC Lavalin issue will 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 get Sheer and the Conservative Party. Um, I think it was interesting. There was a quote from her, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but um, Rebel Wilson stated that if she did win, she would be um, interested in working with the um, winning party. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what if that's the Liberal Party? Mm, (laughs) How are they going to work together on that? You know, Mm. just kind of given everything that happened. So I I think um, that's a minor issue. But like you mentioned earlier, is that SNC-Lavalin um, affair kind of similar to the brown-face-black-face incident where it might not be at the forefront of people's minds, but it'll be kind of lurking in the in the background, perhaps, when people, you know, place that final X on their ballot. As you said, uh, it seemed in the last week since this uh, whole blackface-brownface thing broke that uh, all of a sudden, boom, it's been policy after policy after policy after policy, which, as you mentioned, <laughs> that's great to hear for a change. How yeah. has this changed the campaign, this incident changed the campaign, do you think? Um, well, it was interesting to see um, just how the Liberals would deal with that issue, and it was pretty much the next day that they realized, okay, we're going to have to basically, if I can say, change the channel and, and um, you know, kind of move away from that incident, you know, after apologizing and so forth, but really kind of get back on track. Um, and there were numerous announcements made by the Greens. Like, and, and what I find interesting as well is just, um, well, what policies are they putting forward and what groups are they trying to attract? So um, Sheer reached out um, to the veteran uh, community and, and those that support veterans. I, I'm a big fan and uh, want to see many as much support for the veterans as possible. But they were, uh, so the Conservative government um, uh, put forward some numerous announcements to support veterans um and then the greens um oh they they make if i can say just with the greens they had a bit of a tough week they put forward um numerous policies um and promises and so forth but then um the i think it was a former parliamentary budget officer um also came out and uh, stated um that their um, their promises and so forth just weren't adding up. So they, one of the new things that the Parliamentary Budget Office, it, what they're doing, and this is on demand from the parties, is costing out the various promises. Yeah. And if, for anybody interested, you can just go to their website 
and look at the analysis for each of their promises. Well, yeah, so the Green Party took a bit of a hit because their promises aren't really matching the funding (laughs) Um, and so forth. So, um, and, And I think that's been talked about a little bit just in terms of the NDPs and Greens. Well, they're not likely to get power, so they can, if I can say, afford to make a lot of promises that really aren't realistic. All right, let's talk about a headline that came out of the Canadian press. Trudeau Scheer used populism, corruption to vilify on campaign trail. Uh, I'll read the first paragraph here. Uh, Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer evoked the populism-fueled political turmoil in the United States and Britain and the SNC-Lavalin scandal to vilify each other on the federal campaign trail Thursday. The Liberal leader drew a link between his conservative opponent and the instability caused by the impeachment drama unfolding in the U.S. and the Brexit agony that has racked the uh, the U.K. Trudeau received his uh, accusation that Scheer is relying on the politics of fear to scare voters. Scheer returned with the snc uh, Lavalin affair that has dogged Trudeau in recent months by promising a new law to investigate sleazy politicians. Uh, talk about populism. First, let's give us your definition of what populism is. Does it depend on who you ask? Well, there's, I'll say there's various definitions um, that are used. The two, I would say, most popular definitions um, are, and I, I'd say the most popular one tends to present um and I'm using, I guess, invisible sneer quotes here, the people as a morally pure good force, um, whereas the elite are viewed to be um, self-serving, self-interested, manipulative, corrupt, um, and the elite then place their interests above the people, whoever the people may be. Um, The other definition um, that is sometimes used is just um, the public's um, influence in decision-making or the public's participation in decision-making in government. And I, I think just in reference to the article, I think um, what they're referring to is, is more the first um, definition. And, and I've definitely seen that. And, and you probably heard as well um, just about that poll that was done that show Canadians' trust in science is falling. And yeah, we did, a, we did a piece on that earlier in the week, yes. Yeah, and, and so just, um, you know, 44% of Canadians consider scientists elitist. And I'm kind of going, is, is that a good or a bad thing? And yeah. What does elitist mean? But, I mean, we've seen this um, kind of populist, strategic uh, focusing campaigns in Canada before, and and actually after living um, in Ontario for 29 years, I moved to Alberta, and wow, did I ever get um, a political education and populism there in terms of you know really kind of that us against them, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you can really see that in you know not to the extent say as in the United States where Trump's you know, calls protesters yeah. paid professionals and mm-hmm. the media is the fake news and enemy of the people. But um, even uh, I was looking at the NDP slogan, you know, was it uh, in it for you? And then I'm thinking, well, what, you know, who else? <laughs> and mm. what, who is you? Um, but you see a lot of um, kind of that us against them. And I'm trying to figure out who the people are that, um, say Sheer and Trudeau were focusing on, and I, you know, again, it's that middle class, 
um, the millennials for the first time, really, you know, uh, in the selection, still focusing, though, on the seniors. But I always want to question, you know, who are the people? Um, and then a weird thing, too, with um, um, popular, you know, kind of that populist approach, they call for the kicking out of the political establishment, but they don't really talk about, you know, who will replace them. And mm. if they aren't part of the political establishment, because I would say the conservatives and liberals are the two politically established. But I don't really like seeing this in a campaign because they tend, um, this campaign approach tends to divide people and really not unite them. Mm. And in a campaign, uh, for me, I, I want to see somebody that has that grander um, vision in terms of uniting people and caring for each other. And I know I might sound like a Hallmark card, but that's really what I'm looking for. And and not... Less divisiveness. <laughs> exactly. And not really focusing on the differences, um, which are important in terms of perhaps bringing about more equity, but really bringing people together and talking about a vision that at least most of us um, can agree on at the same time recognizing minority rights. But it, this populist approach, um, it's popping up in terms of, you know, the corruption, um, kind of the the SNC Lavalin affair, where, you know, kind of the corporations have too much influence and so forth. Um, and then just the, the, the policies that are coming forward in terms of... Uh, um, trying to focus on different groups, but it's really more the language in terms of um, I'm here for the the average person. Right. I haven't heard the word common sense used. But it's <laughs> coming. It's still early. <laughs> Dr. Kim Spears has been with us, Assistant Teaching Professor, uh, Master's Project Advisor, School of Public Administration, University of Victoria. Kim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on. According to the Financial Accountability Officers report released yesterday, public schools in Ontario will lose approximately 10,000 teachers in the next five years. To talk more about all of this, uh, Peter Weltman is with us, Financial Accountability Officer and on the line with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Thanks for having me. So uh, how did you arrive at these numbers? Is this under uh, the uh, the template of the new class sizes with reduced, uh, uh, sorry, increased students in each class? That's exactly what it is. And effectively what's happened or what's ha- going to happen is over time we're going to see enrollment increase. It's going to be up fairly dramatically over what it was over the past five years as population, school-age population starts to grow again. Um, so if you had not changed the class sizes, if you left them at 22, more students equals more classes equals more teachers. Once you increase the class size to 28, you don't need quite as many teachers as you, as you, because you're not going to have quite as many classes. So that's effectively what this is. It's, it's a look, looking out five years and saying, we're not cutting 10,000. These are 10,000 teaching positions that would have been needed had the class size not changed. So, uh, also, you estimate the government has provided enough funding to ensure class size targets will be met without teacher layoffs. Many are asking questions how you can take 10,000 out of the system and not, uh, and not lay off. Well, effectively, you're not, 
you're not taking 10,000 out of the system today, right. you, you are not going to hire those right. additional teachers that you would have hired. So folks that are teach, sitting in teacher's college right now might you know, look at this and be a little concerned. Effectively, what this Job Protection Fund does is it bridges the gap between the funding required, the, the decrease of funding that will fund the class size of 28, and the amount of funding needed to ensure that no teachers get laid off. We did some, a look at that as well. And we found that there is sufficient funding in that Jobs Protection Fund to ensure that teachers don't get laid off because of class sizes. There's certainly been, you know, articles about teachers being laid off, but these, those are likely for other reasons, um, part of the ongoing, you know, operations of the school board. So uh, this is basically, if we kept going the way we were over the next five years, we'd have to hire 10,000 teachers. This prevents that from happening. Well, that's that's the plan. So what yeah. this report did was present something to the you know to the standing committee on estimates to say, here's what the education program does. The government is looking to make some changes to try to reduce the cost of the program, and one of the changes that they're proposing is redu- is increasing class sizes, and we estimated that would save about 2.8 billion dollars over the next five years and about $900 million ongoing by not having to hire those teachers because you've increased class sizes. Uh, I'm quoting here, we are always looking to make changes against the status quo. Uh, That's where we've derived the 10,000 number uh, from. That was based on a projection of student enrollment and increased population. Is student enrollment going up or down? I thought it was pretty much stagnant for the last several years. It has been. It has been. It has been slow, and we're looking at population projections now. Over the next five years, we're going to see school-age population growth of about 0.8 percent per year, and up to now, it's been about 0.3. So it, you're right; it has been a little bit stagnant, but it is going to more than double over the next number of years, largely due, and we didn't do a full analysis on that, but largely due to uh, demographic factors. So. Parents are now, you know, at the stage where they're having kids that are that are school age, and immigration certainly adds to that population. So any any population increase will do that as well. So this has been pretty much a a, a demographic issue up till now. I mean, because we've seen school closures, we've seen amalgamations. This has been going on for quite a long time. No. Uh, Yes, I, I, I think it has. Again, our report didn't look at that specifically. Uh, what we were trying to do was to articulate to, to the MPPs that the, you know, the education program is driven primarily by population growth mm-hmm. and by inflation. So we've had fairly stagnant population growth for a while. That's why you've seen some of the school closures, because there was a system designed to deliver education to a certain number of people. And when that number of people shrinks, you have excess capacity. And now we're going to be probably flipping into, you know, to some degree a bit of the opposite. You're going to have some increasing population, school-age population. Um, and the government is trying, as part of its uh, desire to try to rein in, you know, keep spending to 1% per year, is trying to find ways to take some costs out of the system and keep delivering the program, and this is one of the ways they've chosen. Uh, Right now, are there too many teachers in the system? Are there too many teachers, young teachers, waiting in the wings for jobs that are not available? Now, you're projecting uh, an increase in the next five years, but, uh, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of teachers out there. If anything, there's probably too many. Is there not? Or is that information just anecdotal? I can think of off my head right now three teachers that are in their late 20s, early 30s that are just getting jobs. 
Well, I, I again, we didn't look at that specific aspect of it, but on a you know more global basis, if you are into you know looking to become a teacher in Ontario and you're brand new at it, and the first thing that happens is the government says that we're actually going to reduce the requirement for the number of teachers that we've traditionally had. You know, it does have an impact on your ability to to, to find a job in that system. I so guess my question, yeah. I guess yeah, my what? question was, Peter, are, are we already not saturated with teachers in the system before this projection even, mm-hmm. we even get to this projection? Well, I, I, we didn't look at that, so I, I honestly don't know. But the, you know what, that would be a great question for an MPP to bring up at committee when the ministry actually has to you know, start ask, uh, answering some of the questions. And, I, and, I, and I guess my question is, you know, trying to break through the politics of all of this and, and what mm-hmm. the situation is with, with teachers and, and ratio to students and such, um, and if the last 10 years are any indication, now you said that, that that is obviously changing, but if the last 10 years are in any education or any indication, it, it appears that there's been too many teachers and not enough students. And now we're at a situation where, you know, we're, we're trying to thin that out a little bit just as the demand <laughs> is starting yeah. to increase. Well, that's what it would appear, and I would agree with that. It appears that demand will start to increase and there's been a, you know, as you said, the government is looking to reduce supply. Uh, so I guess we'll just have to see how that plays out. That's a, it's a very good point to make. It's good. It, it could be, uh, there could be a, a, a lot of uh, things in play before, before things settle down. I think there's a lot of factors in this other than just the politics of the day. I think I think you're right, and school and the, this is you know education is a complicated program. Yeah. Everybody knows somebody who's in school or has a child in school, so uh, it, it it you know comes it, it it rings true for lots of people. Peter Weltman has been with us, financial accountability officer. Peter, thank you so much for taking some time and sharing with it, with us uh, today. We much uh, greatly appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It seemed like the last uh, several months, weeks, everybody's talking about veggie burgers. Like veggie burgers are exploding and and people are jumping on board and, and, you know, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to eat this as if a veggie burger is somehow better for you. Is it? I'm not sure. I heard that whether it's processed food or not, it's still processed food and usually fast food is just that. So are you really at any advantage for having a veggie burger? Uh, On all of this, McDonald's is jumping into the fray. And I guess for the next 12 weeks, they're going to try an experiment with uh, their new burger, which I think is called um, a PLT. A PLT. A protein Lettuce and tomato? I don't know what that means. All right, let's bring in Rosie Schwartz, registered dietitian, uh, nationally best-selling author, The Enlightened Eater, and is with us now. Rosie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott. How are you feeling about this latest uh, craze and everybody in- interested in veggie burgers? What should we know about this? Are they better for you? Well, if it's a, if it's a veggie burger that's made with real whole food, then absolutely um it's got a lot of a lot of nutrition that it offers but if it's so called plant based um and it and it contains um a long list of ingredients then um then likely not then it's ultra processed and ultra processed foods are being shown to be a culprit in developing um, high blood pressure, diabetes, increased weight. So 
it's the it's the plant based when you call it, and that's they're calling the PLT. It's plant lettuce tomato. Oh, there so, you go. Okay. So when you put plant in, it gets this this health halo, and when it comes to fast food burgers, it's an undeserved health halo. So uh, you, you made the distinction of, I said veggie burger initially, you said plant-based. So is that how a consumer can, can uh, you know, weave their way through all of this? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think, I well, I think when we're seeing the term, the term being used plant-based, I, I feel like it might be a product that, um, that is, how can I say, trying to put one over on us? Um, yeah. Plant-based foods are great. The new food guide, Canada's food guide, is promoting that, you know, saying we should be choosing more plant-based food. But when they're talking about that, they're talking about, you know, fruits and vegetables and lentils and nuts and seeds and whole grains. I don't think they're talking about a burger that's loaded with sodium and has a lot of in- ingredients, none of which are really whole foods. So um, are we to assume that anything that is fast food is going to be ultra-processed? So even a veggie burger that comes from a fast food outlet is, you know, you, you may not be eating meat, but you're still eating a lot, like you said, sodium and, and other things and other additives and such. <laughs> Depend- no, it depends on, on the actual food. It depends on... On what um, you know, if you're getting fast food and you're getting um, you know something with beans in it, for example, and vegetables, um, you might you know you, you might go to a fast food taco restaurant, for example, um, or there may be some some fast food places that are making their own their own veggie burgers. Right. Um, and so if if it's if it's I guess what you think of as real food. Yeah. If it's if it's real food, then there's going to be a fair bit of nutrition. Now, for people um, who don't want to eat meat, people who are are vegan or vegetarian, um, then it it may be a treat for them. Now, I have read that they're going to be cooking it on the same grill. So for some some vegans, that might yeah, not. Yeah, that's be not okay. going to cut it. Yeah. But but for someone who's a vegan and wants a fast food treat, then that's great for them. Chances are, though, that if they are if they are vegan, they don't necessarily want something that tastes just like meat. Yeah, and and you know, I think you bring up a valid point here about a treat's a treat as opposed to you know, I mean, there's not much restaurant food that is you know, it's designed to be good for you, so or it's it's designed to taste good and give you an incredible experience, so you come back. It's not designed to eat every single day. Well, if it's fast food, probably that's the case. There, there are, there are some places that are preparing, mm-hmm. um, are preparing vegan foods, um, and they and they're they're making great great stuff. So, what should um, a consumer look for when trying to wade through this mess? How do you know, you know, what's marketing and, and what is actually better for you? Well, one of the things to do is to go to the um, if it's a chain. Go to their website, and if you go to their website and look up the nutrition information, then it'll give you a lot of a lot of insight as to what's in that product. So, for example, when the um, when A and W first came out with their um, Beyond Burger, 
I, you know, I look which a lot of people say is very good. And and so and they like you know they like the taste of it yeah. that it resembles meat. But when you go and you look at their website, you see that that their Beyond Burger contains more sodium than a lot of their <laughs> regular yeah. beef burgers. Yeah. So when you're when you look at the information and look at the ingredient list, and we know we know that I mean processed foods are fine. Things like bread and cheese. Um, Canned canned beans, tuna; those are all processed foods. It's the ultra processed foods yeah. that science is showing are not good. So when you get a long list of ingredients of of um, ingredients that you would never cook with at home, then that mm. tends to distinguish between processed and ultra processed. Are you surprised the popularity of these recently? Um, yes and no. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, there's much more. We're seeing all the, you know, all the news about climate, um, you know, climate change. And, and yes, we need to be concerned about climate change. But so people think, oh, I should eat less meat. Well, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this, but um, I know that the, um, that Beyond Meat has two factories only that I know of, at least they did only a short while ago, and they're both located in California. So my question is, what is the carbon footprint of shipping that mm. to um, <laughs> the rest Lebanon of the world? Area yeah. <laughs> Good point. Compared to buying, buying some um, beef from a local farmer. Yeah, makes sense. Ro- uh, Rosie Swartz has been with us, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author, The Enlightened Eater, talking about the rise of plant-based or veggie-type burgers. Uh, McDonald's, the latest to jump on board. Rosie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water. We're going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry! Hurry! Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.